The octopus is an intelligent and mysterious creature. It changes colour as quickly as it can move, and yet it's colourblind. Its esophagus runs through its brain. Marine biologist David Scheel has had a long fascination with them. He's discovered a new species. He's learned how they communicate. He's Professor of Marine Biology at Alaska Pacific University in Anchorage. And he has a book called Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses. And he's with me now. Hello. Hello. I don't want to talk about the plural of octopuses with you. I think you're an expert and we will rely on octopuses. Can you tell me why somebody who is not comfortable on or near water and had never lived on the coast became a marine biologist, please? (laughs) Well, I... I think I was intrigued by the ocean as a young person. And, uh, you know, I used to read a lot of of science fiction novels too. And I always figured that um, if I couldn't study some sort of alien biology on another planet, the ocean was probably as close as I was going to get. You started out as an animal behaviorist in general, an ecologist and animal behaviorist, studied lions and wild dogs in the Serengeti. And this, despite a lot of allergies, you suffer from. You seem seem inclined to put yourself in very hostile situations constantly. Uh, (laughs) Well, the the allergies go with me wherever I go, except underwater. Um, uh, And and, and scuba diving, I I think, um, is probably safer than driving uh you know overall um so i i think we all kind of find ourselves in hazardous conditions at one point or another fair enough tell me about octopuses first of all if they are colorblind how do they manage to figure out what color they should become for the best camouflage. Yeah. Um, well, this I think this has been a puzzle for a while. Uh, it's it's perplexing because we tend to phrase the question just exactly the way you did. Um, and I guess the answer to your question would be the octopuses don't. They don't do that. They... Um, they match many other things in the environment, um, but for the most part, they're not color matching. Octopuses are seeing uh, particle size. They're seeing brightness, intensity, um, and, and they're matching those things. And in the underwater world in particular, the deeper you go, the less... Uh, color there is in the light, the fewer colors there are in the light because the seawater um, absorbs light uh, and it, it absorbs the colors differentially. So you lose the red first and then other colors and so on until 
until in the very deep, you're left with this sort of monochromatic uh, color uh, in the light itself. And so the information that the octopuses need to match once they're very deep at all is primarily other things besides color. Uh, and very shallow, um, they also rely primarily on matching uh, brightness, intensity, particle size, those kinds of things. And it's shocking how well that fools our eye. Because they can see they've got Polaroid capacity. Polarizer, yes, yes. They uh, they see uh, the polarization in light, which is something they can see that we generally do not. And polarization in light is, is that sort of um, factor that results in in glare off of flat shiny surfaces and and so what's happening there is the the light from the sun comes in um, at all angles of polarization and then when it hits that flat surface um, only the angles parallel to that flat surface are reflected and so uh, the, the octopus eye can detect that angle of, of the, uh, the oscillation of the light waves. And, and that's something that we can't see at all. Um, we just see the brightness. We talk a lot. Is- so I mean, this generally goes to intelligence, really. We talk a lot about octopus intelligence. Do you think they are intelligent in the way we understand intelligence? How do you determine it? Well, you know, I, I've never worked specifically on the question that, that might be formulated sort of how intelligent is an octopus. Um, and we don't see questions that sort of, sort of general. Um, but I do like to work a little more on questions like how do they think and how does what they see in the world influence their behavior? And one of the, one of the things that, that you sort of realize working with octopuses is that they're, um, they're very curious animals. They're very um, flexible animals and they're very persistent animals. And I talk about this in one of the chapters of, of my book, many things under a rock, um, and I talk about how this octopus is trying to get into this really thick clamshell. And if, if you think about it, that's a tough problem. Uh, this is a big, fat clam, um, very well sealed and very strong. And if, if I were to hand it to you, or if you were to hand it to me, for that matter, uh, neither one of us would be able to open it. Uh, you know, and we've got hard teeth and we've got um, strong muscles and and yet I, I think this clam would probably defeat us until we picked up a tool. Um, but the octopus is a soft-bodied animal for the most part. It does have one hard part, its beak. Um, and it's very strong, but it's also very persistent. And so it the from the signs on the shell, uh, I could tell that the octopus had spent a lot of time persistently trying and failing to get into this clam. Uh, until eventually it, it managed to do so uh, by trying, you know, yet another uh, way to get in that it hadn't uh, tried before. It tried to to break the edge of the clamshell with its with its beak, and then from there it it almost certainly used uh, toxins and uh, in its saliva. 
And so by having this sort of diverse toolkit and sort of working its way through the options, the octopus is able to solve this problem. And I think that's what that's how we see intelligence. That's one of the ways I see intelligence um, is that it's made up of this sort of curiosity, persistence and flexibility. When one thing doesn't work, try another, never give up, never surrender. Um, and that's how we, we solve problems. That's how we're smart. And that's how the octopus is smart. I mean, the reason octopuses are so fascinating to many of us is that they are so alien. You know, they're shape shifters, they're color shifters, they've got the tentacles. We just don't understand how they might see the world. And this is why your book's so fascinating. That's why the Netflix documentary, My Octopus Teacher, was so fascinating. What did you think of that, by the way? You know, there's a there's a lovely um, other octopus documentary that was made uh, almost at the same time. It came out a little bit before uh, Teacher did. Um, uh, the BBC released it as the as the octopus in my house. But that was and, you, uh, wasn't it? It was me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> forgive me for the self plug. Yeah, yeah. That was me. But but also it was the octopus Heidi. It was my daughter Laurel, um, and it was really an incredible team of filmmakers and storytellers uh, getting together to assemble what I think was um, something that was, you know, sort of engaging to watch. And, and I think that's what that's what teacher did as well, was to assemble, um, you know, an, a story about uh, about this human animal interaction. And what what we tried to do in um, the octopus in my house was was to to weave as much sort of understanding and knowledge about the octopus as we could into into the story and that's what i tried to do in many things under a rock as well because i think when we see the octopus as alien uh we're really seeing that we can't immediately apply the knowledge um of how we engage the world to understand how the octopus engages the world we have to work at it a little bit instead of asking questions about color we have to ask questions about form um, instead of talking about how an octopus can pick things out of the background, we have to talk about how sunglasses interrupt polarized light. And so it's a different set of narratives that we need to really engage with what an octopus is like. Um, but I think that's really important that, that we step uh, outside of the most familiar narratives and we try out some some related ones, things that that are familiar, but they're not our go-tos. And by doing that, we can understand a little bit more of, of the broader world and of the octopus particularly. Do I, just briefly, do I read from that that you think that my octopus teacher was uh, too human-sized? Mm. I don't think I was trying to say that. No. All right. You've had two octopuses in your house. Heidi, which you mentioned in the context of the documentary, and Thursday. 
in your home aquarium, both of them seemed to build a relationship with your daughter, Laurel, to the extent that I think, as you describe in the book, Thursday liked holding on to her with a tentacle. What's yes. your explanation for that? Well, Laura was one of the main caretakers for those aquariums, along with myself and, and some other, some additional people to help out because it's a big job. Um, but, but Laurel, you know, she's very engaged with animals and she has a real eye um, for, for uh, the other, if you will. And um, she also has a lot of patience. And so I think that, you know, um, for an octopus, they're very curious about the world. They're very interested. They really engage the world with their suckers and their eyes. And we engage the world with, with our eyes and with our fingers. And so there's really a, a meeting of, of exploration there, I think, uh, in the sense of touch and the sense of vision. And, and I think that, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the things I did try to explain a little bit uh, in the book, again, is, is this notion that we, we shouldn't really be that surprised that an animal can have a relationship, that an octopus uh, has a relationship, because a relationship isn't, it isn't this great, complicated thing. They, they can be messy, of course, and, and, you know, they can be complicated, but they can also simply, simply exist and simply uh, relate, uh, you know, one individual to another. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what happens with octopuses. And I, I talked uh, in the latter chapters of, of Many Things Under a Rock about different kinds of relationships that octopuses have. Uh, I call them both wild and domestic. Uh, wild meaning relationships with with other species. And, you know, there, there are octopuses that appear to be in cooperative relationships with fish. Um, there are octopuses that, that um, cohabitate with, um, with other species of fish. There are octopuses that uh, are uh, interactive with, with animals that might be predators or might be prey. And then the domestic side of that, uh, I use that word to, to think about octopuses that are relating to one another. The wild relationship chapter includes, I think, a description of an octopus which seems to be coexisting with three fish. And it's, as you describe it, it's got its sort of, <laughs> it's got its arms kind of draped over these fish. Cooperative, possibly, but but we don't know what the nature of that cooperation might be. It doesn't seem to be obvious, does it? No, no, it's not. And, and I sort of, I sort of raised that question um, many years ago with, with uh, my collaborator on, on that work, Peter Godfrey Smith. And we talked a little bit about it. Um, you know, the, so the scene is, is this octopus den under a rock, which is, is not a great big space. And in there, you have the octopus and cheek and jowl by the octopus, you have these three sort of coddling fish, these little little reddish fish with barbels. Uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're not as quite as big as the octopus, but they're comparable in size. And octopuses are known to, to eat fish 
there's, you know, there's this infamous little paper out there uh, now about octopuses punching fish uh, that seem to be annoying them, trying to drive them away. So there's this sort of uh, context of stories of octopuses interacting with fish in which there's never anything cordial going on. Um, either the fish is trying to eat the octopus, the octopus is trying to eat the fish, or they're pecking at one another and, and annoying one another. And here in this den that I'm, I'm looking at underwater with Peter, um, none of that is happening. It's very cordial. They're sitting there peering out at us uh, in seeming contentment. And when we, you know, we left cameras behind when we left, and we could see that that contentment existed even in the absence of, of us watching them. Uh, they're still just sitting there. And so, you know, Peter and I began to sort of kick the ideas back and forth. Well, what's going on? Uh, maybe the fish are useful to the octopus in some way, but we couldn't think of how that might be. Possibly, and, and couldn't ever say no to this idea, possibly the, the octopus would prefer the fish aren't there, but it's just really a lot of effort to get rid of them. And not, <laughs> not worth it. Right. You know, maybe they like the cockroach in your storage shed. You, you don't have any particular desire for them to be there, but but rather, maybe maybe you'd rather not. But equally likely um, is that the octopus doesn't mind them at all. They don't pester the octopus. The octopus pe doesn't pester them. And octopuses really do seem to like to have something going on. Um, they, they seem to uh, be interested in the world. And because of that, you know, what, what we call this in the sciences, we call this epistematic hunger, this idea that, that we, we, we feel less discontented if there's something going on, if there's something to look at, if there's something to touch, um, whatever. And so, you know, our senses want input. And maybe the octopus just likes having the fish nearby for that reason because it's companionable. Um, and we can't say no. Uh, there's no, you know, we don't have any evidence that that's not the case, but neither do we have any evidence that it is the case. But, but it seems like a plausible story to me. You don't think that the octopus was just letting the fish hang around until the octopus got hungry. I don't know what the end of that story is. Do you? We, we don't know. Um, it's quite possible that if the octopus had five days of poor foraging, um, suddenly those fish would start to look like they were roasted on a spit instead of uh, 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 pets or something like that. Um, but, you know, the same can be said for us, right? On, on your 21st day of not eating anything, um, who knows what your neighbor's the dog, to look like. The dog starts to look tasty. Right. The, yeah, your, your pet parrot suddenly... Uh, takes on a whole different countenance. Or or more to the point, your pet fish. What do you say about whether the arms, the tentacles of octopuses are autonomous? I mean, given the anatomy of the nervous system, it would seem likely, and you've got this really <laughs> terrifying description of a fisherman who's cut off the octopus's arms and tossed them into a bucket, and the arms seemed to try to escape. Yes, I, I use that moment, that incident, to, to illustrate this context, as you said, of the, 
the autonomy of the arms. And, and this idea arises out of the very different um, organization of the nervous system of the octopus is very different to that of you and I. So in, in a human, maybe 95% maybe of the neurons, the nerve cells in our body lie in the brain. So they're in the head, in the brain. It's very much central control. And then the rest of the nervous system, uh, it's a little bit, it's a lot really more complicated than, than wires out of, you know, out of which, which carry commands out to the body. But in many ways, that's a reasonable metaphor uh, in, in humans. In octopuses, that corresponding amount is um, it's about one third of the nerve cells in an octopus's body lie in the brain. Um, and, and the reason is that the arms are incredibly complicated limbs and they're full of sensory organs that have to send information to other parts of the nervous system, including to the brain. Uh, they're full of uh, complicated muscle arrays um, and, and, and repeated serially so that, you know, instead of having, for example, you know, one muscle, a bicep, you know, they've got uh, hundreds of suckers in two rows down the arm and each sucker has to be able to bend and turn. So very complicated structures. And as a result, about two thirds of the nerve cells um, in the octopus's body are not in the brain. And this leads to this idea, well, are the arms themselves uh, autonomous? Can they do things on their own? And as that incident you described uh, illustrates, they can in some ways. And then the question is sort of, do they do things um, without the input or reference to the rest of the octopus? In other words, not only are they autonomous, but could they in principle mutiny? Um, and, you know, I, I think that autonomy means that a great deal can happen out very quickly, locally in the arms. Things related to passing uh, an item from one sucker to the next, either towards the mouth or out away from the body. Uh, things related to um, uh, grabbing something that is starting to run away, for example. These things can happen very quickly, um, quite possibly before the brain even becomes aware of them. But um, in terms of that other idea, can they do something sort of different or separate? I, I don't see any reason that that would exist. Um, even if it were possible, it, 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 would, it would never seem to work out in a way that it, it was in the interest of the arms to, to try and take charge, as it were. So we've got a creature that, by all accounts, is solitary and asocial and at times cannibalistic, let's be honest, and yet they seem to form relationships, whether it be with your daughter or with other fish, and with each other. You've looked at Octopolis, um, which is off the coast of Australia. This is Peter Godfrey Smith was your colleague on that project. What did you find there? What's going on? Yeah, Octopolis is a really interesting place. Um, and it, it seems to arise because of some things, some basic needs that drive the biology of, of 
most animals, but particularly of octopuses. So uh, like like everything else, octopuses need uh, need food. And there's there's a really rich um, scallop population in Jervis Bay uh, and particularly near this location, Octopolis. And the octopuses uh, feed on those scallops. And when the other thing that is going on in, in Jervis Bay is that there's uh, there are a lot of predators. It's very dangerous waters for an octopus. Um, everything from sharks to penguins to triggerfish and, and quite certainly a, a great deal more. Um, and as a result, it's very dangerous for octopuses. And that means they need shelter and they need it uh, reliably. And uh, Shelter is in short supply on the bottom of Jervis Bay. Aside from the scallops, underlying the scallops, it's algae and silt uh, in many places much further than the eye can see. You know, this sort of very large expanse uh, of this scallop bed. Uh, but there's nothing for the octopuses to, to hide under. There's, there's very few rocks. There are some, which we eventually found, but um, there are very few of them. And so Octopolis is unique because in that spot, something, uh, a human artifact apparently dropped to the bottom there. <clears throat> and we don't know what it is. It's half buried in the silt and it's been there long enough that it's completely crusted over with marine growth. But it's apparently metal and uh, an octopus was able to make a dent under it. Um, and, and then this is what we think happened then. Foraging on these abundant scallops in great danger, the octopus goes and gets uh, a meal, rips it up off the bottom, and then trundles back to the den as quickly as possible to hide. Uh, eats his food at the den, and then throws the remains um, outside of the door uh, of the den. And so those remains are now uh, empty scallop shells cleaned of meat. And uh, over time, these build up and they stabilize the sediment a little bit. And now another octopus can uh, make a den in the scallop bed nearby, um, in, the, in the pile of shells, in the pile of discarded shells. And so this then allows that pile of discarded shells to expand until it's not, you know, it's not just a circle, it's, it's several meters across. Um, and, and so that's what we find. And at that spot, when it's really, um, when it's really rich, we can find, you know, 15 or more octopuses. And when you put 15 octopuses in one relatively small location, because they are preferentially solitary, because they can be cannibalistic, as you've mentioned, you would sort of expect that it would be a site of, of sort of great violence uh, and decimation, or that, that smaller octopuses would simply avoid it. Um, but what we find instead is that the dens are, are occupied, um, and there is a great deal of interaction amongst the octopuses, but very little um, uh, extreme violence, very little injury or death. Um, and that was a surprise. That was kind of shocking uh, because there is uh, has been such an emphasis on octopuses as, as potentially cannibalistic. Do you ever wonder whether, I mean, human beings we regard as ultimately social creatures. 
Do, do you ever think that maybe we're not that social? We're as pragmatic as the octopus in terms of seeing that protection and better food might rely on us bunching up? Well, you know, to an animal behaviorist, social has always had these kind of uh, dynamics of um, conflict uh, that they, they come together. And, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I, I started my career uh, watching African lions in the Serengeti. And um, the lions, of course, they, the female lions are that hang out together, they have this structure that we refer to as a pride, this social structure. And it's really a family group. It's made up of sisters and aunts and daughters and mothers. And, um, you know, they're they're hanging out together. They're hunting food together. Um, they're raising cups together. Uh, and, and there is a, a cohort of males will often be associated with the pride of females in the lions. But that cohort of males, the males kind of fight amongst themselves, not within a cohort, but between cohorts, to um, have access to a group of females. And um, the females are very active in, in manipulating this and, and in um, choosing as well. But, but the, the males that cooperate together uh, sometimes are related to one another. But the interesting thing is when a male doesn't have any relatives, it will nevertheless pair up with one or more other males to try and get an edge in the competition amongst male cohorts to be sort of resident with a group of females and have opportunity to um, possibly mate or at least court. And so, you know, what's intriguing about that is the sociality of even lions, you know, considered in some ways some of the most social of the mammals is built around family and it only extends to non-family when there's there's little choice and and i think so so i think it wasn't surprising to me to see octopuses um it was surprising in the context of how we talk about octopuses but it wasn't surprising in the context of of how we talk about socialness to see octopuses sort of pairing up not pairing up uh, octopus is interacting in this sort of way of sort of managing their interactions with one another, um, even though they aren't family, right? And, and this is what's different between the kind of sociality that we talk about all the time with primates, chimpanzees, or with bees, or with lions. Those are all socialities based on family bonds. That's the core of how those animals form their groups. Octopuses are forming their groups more like those two males, uh, two male lions who don't know each other, but pair up anyways. They're kind of forced by circumstances and by the potential of great danger to put up with one another. Uh, and then they do, and they manage it exquisitely. If you studied any species, you know, the slow worm, would you find things about it, if you studied it long and hard enough, would you find things about it, do you believe, that would make us think, gosh, what a complicated and intelligent creature? In other words, 
have we hoisted octopuses high because we've been studying them so much of late? Yeah. Well, you're answering and you're asking an, an animal behaviorist whether animal behavior is interesting. So my answer is, of course it is. And of course, uh, what we see when we study the biological world is that, um, you know, effectively natural selection has uh, shaped organisms to solve the problems that they, the universal problems of how do you get enough uh, resources? How do you get enough shelter? How do you um, find a mate uh, in ways that make exquisite sense for the animal's circumstances or the organism's circumstances? And so every every animal demonstrates uh, that kind of intelligence, if you will, that kind of uh, success. Um, or it never would have evolved in the first place. But what I think makes octopuses interesting is the way they kind of, um, uh, they do this in a way that, I kind of want to think it's, 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 it seems like our kind of intelligence. You try not to anthropomorphize, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, it seems like our kinds of intelligence because it's a little bit flexible in general. Yeah. And of course, the octopus is exquisite at flexibility, yeah. right? They have no bones. But in a way, they've but evolved in a way, to forage in coral reefs. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, that's my point, that because we think that we can recognize things we have in common with the octopus we find it consequently fascinating, but all the things that we can't possibly find any commonality with, we ignore. Ultimately, we're always anthropomorphizing. Well, this is one of my points in Many Things Under a Rock, kind of one of the thrusts of the book, is that the biology of octopuses is interesting, but amongst animals in general, it's not particularly unexpected or um, uniquely fascinating. There are some things that are absolutely unique about octopuses. Um, and the more we study their sort of genetics and physiology, which is, is not my particular area of expertise, the more of these are turning up. But in terms of their behavior patterns, in terms of the kinds of uh, cognition that they bring to bear on the world, um, they're fascinating because they're they're persistent and flexible and curious, but they they don't seem to me to be um, unique in that way. There are so many animals that are um, so deeply uh, devoted to solving the problems that occur in their own lives, and you know we see this in other smart animals that are social like um, uh, the, the, the dolphins and the, um, and the, the chimpanzees but, uh, and, and dogs. But we also see it in, in you know, cats, for example, and we see it in, in um, mice, and we see it in birds, and, you know, so on and on. We see it in fish. Um, and so, so it, it's, it's uh, ubiquitous across the animal world. According to the particular... Uh, 
properties of the species in question. The intelligence of a clam is mostly on display as it sorts the particles that it filter feeds through. Um, the intelligence of a scallop, which is a very visual kind of relative of the clam, um, is a little bit easier for us to approach because it's more similar to our own world. And the intelligence of an octopus, which is a mollusk like the clam and the scallop, is yet again more similar because not only are they visual, but they're also tactile. They also have these limbs that manipulate the world. Finally, David, I just want to ask you, on account of the fact that there have been plans for the world's first commercial octopus farm in Gran Canaria, what you think, I think, reading your book, that you have judged it both impractical as well as unethical. Um, I think those two things have been linked. The, 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 so the, the concerns about uh, this octopus farm have been that um, on the one hand, the demands of the octopus are so high in terms of uh, stimulus and isolation that they cannot abide by being near one another or they will be cannibalistic and they cannot abide to be isolated um, because they are so intelligent and they need so much stimulus in order to thrive. Those are the technical concerns that have to be met and will fail as a matter of practice, uh, practicality, the, uh, the aquaculture industry will fail to meet them. And by failing to do so, we'll create uh, an ethical uh, dilemma because then the only way to rear octopuses in commercially successful aggregation will be cruel um, and therefore unethical. Um, and I, I'm concerned about the, the nature of this argument um, because I think that we really have um, underestimated how successful the aquaculturists will be. Um, these are smart people and they are dedicated to their work and octopuses, I think, as we've seen at Octopolis, um, have some surprising flexibility in their life history. And so I suspect that in time, um, aquaculturists will be able to feed octopuses, to rear them um, without isolation uh, and without uh, more than minor cannibalism at all, so that um, most of these individuals will live in... Um, uh, in in enclosures or containers or um, in in the in the rearing facility, in a way that they provide their own enrichment and stimulation, uh, and so they won't be bored either. And I think if all of that happens, the notion that there's a strong ethical argument against uh, rearing aquaculture uh, uh, octopuses in aquaculture will seem to have failed. But, but my own uh, concern is if we look, octopus aquaculture is a form of concentrated animal husbandry uh, for food. And if we look at all the other sort of concentrated animal feedlots around uh, the aquaculture industry, from how we rear pigs to how we rear chickens, to even how we rear salmon for food, um, the intensity and the concentration and the aggregation of these things as an industry 
leave a lot to be desired in terms of animal welfare and, and ethical food sourcing. And until we've solved those problems broadly, I don't see any reason to expect that octopus aquaculture will be overall any better, even if we do solve all the technical issues. Appreciate your time. Very good to talk to you. Thank you. Professor thank David you so Shield, thank, thank you, is Professor of Marine Biology at Alaska Pacific University in Anchorage. His book is called Many Things Under a Rock, which is what the native people in Alaska, some of them, call octopus. That's how it translates.